My name is William. And I'm Rosie Wanderer. And this is Good Morning Democracy. Good morning and thank you for listening. And what a week it has been so far. While Donald Trump is steady trying to burn down the institution of the president, real shit is still happening in the world. Oh yeah? Do tell. Well, for starters, Puerto Ricans voted for statehood. Yeah, that's like a band-aid on a bullet wound, right? We'll get to that later. And honestly, that was the only happy news I had. Everything <laughs> gets pretty bleak from here. Well, let's just give it to them straight then. A man identified as James T. Hodgkinson of Bellevue, Illinois, opened fire at a Republican congressional baseball practice in Virginia. Before opening fire, he asked if they were Democrats or Republicans. And in the fray, House Majority Whip Steve Scalise and lobbyist Matt Micah were injured, as well as two others. Well, other than that, Republicans are secretly working up an Obamacare repeal bill in the Senate. And police are still being acquitted for killing unarmed citizens. Most recently in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where a police officer shot and killed Terrence Crutcher, an unarmed motorist stopped by police. We all remember this video, right? The guy standing outside of his van, he's getting shot by police while a helicopter is shooting overhead. And mm -hmm. in other police shooting news, isn't that sad? We can say that. The officer who shot Philando Castile has been found not guilty. Fucking done. It's sickening. I'm done. I'm fucking done. Listen to this. Philando Castile was driving his car, big body Oldsmobile, with his girlfriend in the passenger seat. And her daughter in the back seat. He was stopped by a Latino officer who said that he stopped him because he had a broken taillight. Rewind. When the lawyers reached out to the police department and asked for police scanner audio, you know what it said? You know what he said? He said he stopped these two individuals in his car because, and I quote, the two occupants look just like the people who were involved in a robbery. The driver looks more like one of our suspects just because of a wide set nose. Cops are straight liars. So you're telling me the first story was he had a broken taillight. Oh no, his taillight wasn't broken. Now he looks like a robbery suspect because he's black with a wide set nose? And if he was a robbery suspect, there's no cop in his right mind that would walk up to a suspect exactly. and calmly ask him for his identification. Exactly. Weapons black drawn. Man, dreadlocks, wide set nose, armed robbery suspect, and this cop nonchalantly walks up to him? Get the fuck out of here. So this can mean one of two things. Either this cop is ill-trained for a felony stop, because I know I'm not even a fucking cop, but I know if I thought a guy was an armed robbery suspect, I'd be in my car on my damn loudspeaker, like, sir, get out the vehicle with your hand shown and back away, or lay down and take him into custody, run his ID, make sure that that's not the case. But what happened was racial profiling at its finest. Just like when Sandra Bland was stopped by that cop who saw her driving by, not committing any crime, but he made the illest U-turn to stop her. Okay, so fine. People want to say he's a Latino cop. Latinos can't be biased. Wrong. That's a fucking lie. Latinos are just as racist as the next person. And if you think bias doesn't exist in police departments, then you're, you're not thinking. You're just not thinking. And... Accusations of police racial profiling in Minnesota isn't something new. In the 1990s, it got so bad that they had to commission a report. So when was the last report? It was in 2003. And you know what that comprehensive statewide review showed? 
It showed that blacks and Latinos were stopped more than whites. They were searched at a higher rate, yet they were found in possession of drugs at a far lower rate. Those are the facts. The facts is this officer was not in fear of his life. The fact is Philando Castile informed this officer that he had a weapon, that he had a permit to carry that weapon. This cop got scared. He told the officer where the weapon was. Mm-hmm. You know what this cop did? He pulled out his gun and he shot this man. And when it came up to the reason why, he lied. And again, police just aren't held accountable. And up until this stop, Philando Castillo had been stopped by police 46 times. He, was, he paid over $6,000 in fines. This is what a lot of experts are calling widening the net. To widen the net, to make everything a crime, to make everything a revenue driver, to ticket people so that these people can pay their salaries and buy new uniforms and put new decals on their police vehicles. That's why Philando Castile died. Because this is a revenue system, not justice. This reminds me of the time when I was stopped in Gainesville while I was on my way to go pick up my brother from work. This cop pulls up on me, makes this ill U-turn, because I might have been playing my music a little loud. I might have been wearing a hat backwards. Who knows? But when that female cop pulled up on me, she had her hand on her waist. I was terrified. Never been stopped before in my life. She wouldn't even tell me why she pulled me over. Instead, she said, is there any weapons and drugs in the car? Not knowing my rights, I said, no, you're welcome to search it. And they tore my car apart. And when I finally kept pressing and pressing and pressing and pressing, asking them, why did you pull me over? Why did you pull me over? You know, this lady cop had the nerve to tell me that my license plate light was out. But then told me that I couldn't go to the back of the vehicle. She told me to stay in my spot, stay in my place, or she was going to do something. She had her hand on her gun. When I got home and I got out of my car and I looked at my license plate, Two brand new LED bulbs were just glowing in full glory, illuminating my license plate. That could have been anybody. The reason cops stop people sometimes aren't justified. But no jury of 12 men and women will ever find that cop guilty. They won't. And I'm sorry for all the cursing and the yelling and all this, but I just, I just, I can't anymore, man. This is just outrageous. Monday also marked a year since the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, Florida a safe space for our LGBTQ community, which was invaded by hate and gun violence. And in the years since, there have been no restrictive gun laws passed. Mm-mm, not a single one. Yet another year of Congress members collecting a check and not doing shit for the people. And that just explains to you that the system is broken down. Damn, that was really sad news. <laughs> right? I think we need to incorporate some happy shit into our lineup of stories, too. But before we dive into our main stories, let's run through an update of this week's Trump news in a new segment we are calling Donald Trump is probably lying. Most likely. Definitely. He's definitely lying. Starting first with James Comey. Former FBI Director James Comey testified last Thursday, and he straight up called the president <laughs> A liar. Mentiroso. Under oath, y'all. His testimony will go down in history. A lawyer. And head FBI agent. Gave public testimony under oath. And everyone believes James Comey to be a man who possesses the highest respect for the sanctity of honesty. The underpinning of our justice system. To raise your right hand and tell the truth, so help you God. And yesterday, Jeffrey. Joffrey. Behover God Sessions himself went in front of the same panel, and boy, was his testimony some horseshit. Now, as we play the clips of Comey's testimony, listen deeper. 
None of the Republicans on the Senate panel questioned that the events occurred in the way Comey said they did. They simply deflected on Donald Trump's actions as being menial, that he was probably joking and he wasn't thinking about obstruction of justice. Not a single one called him a liar. Not a single one questioned his integrity. None of them questioned his testimony. They simply tried to defend what Trump said. And John McCain, unfortunately, had an episode of dementia on national television, and we sincerely hope Senator McCain is doing well. (laughs) They could have said, sir, you must be lying. Could have. The president says you're lying. But no, we live in a country where the president's integrity and honesty is an open question. Don't y'all miss President Barack Obama? But take a listen to Paul Ryan give this excuse about why the president is doing what he's doing. The president's new at this. He's new to government. And so he probably wasn't steeped in the long-running protocols that established the relationships between DOJ, FBI, and White Houses He's just new to this. I'm not saying it's an acceptable excuse. It's just my observation. He's new at government. And so therefore, I think that he uh, he's learning as he goes. And he's I'm not saying it's an acceptable excuse. I'm not saying it's an acceptable excuse. I'm not saying it's an acceptable excuse. He doesn't he don't know. know. Oh, this God. shit reminds me of the Dave Chappelle stand up when his friend <laughs> looks at say. the cop and says, sir, I didn't know I couldn't do that. You're on Fourth Street. That's hilarious, <laughs> dog. Dave Chappelle, a visionary. Listen, y'all. If President Trump is impeached, it goes to Pence. And if Pence cannot do his duties, do you know who becomes the president? Oh, God. Paul Ryan. Paul fucking Ryan. And if Trump and Pence don't haunt your dreams, they do. Paul Ryan certainly will. So here's what you need to know. Upon taking office, Donald Trump had already informed James Comey that his job was safe. Remember, he was appointed by Barack Obama three and a half years ago for a 10-year term. But during a private one-on-one dinner, shortly thereafter, Donald Trump asked Comey, do you want to keep your job? Yeah, bro, what the fuck? I want to keep my job. It's the only job I got. And didn't you just tell me my job was safe? Is Trump running a country or an unemployment office? He's fired so many people. (laughs) So then Donald Trump goes on to ask James Comey for loyalty. What James Comey cannot give. He is supposed to be impartial. He said, I can give you honesty. And they both just sat there looking at each other awkwardly. That sounds (laughs) awkward. More awkward than when you say goodbye to someone and then you realize y'all are both walking in the same direction. Or like when you when you think someone's waving at you and then you wave back and they're not really waving (laughs) at you. You're like, damn, I knew I didn't know that person. I should have been waving at him anyways. That's the story of my life. That was in January. Listen to this audio clip of Comey talking about loyalty. Yes, specifically of loyalty in the context of asking me to stay. As I said, what was odd about that is we'd already talked twice about it by that point, and he'd said, uh, I very much hope you'll stay. I hope you'll stay. In fact, I just remembered sitting here a third one. When you've seen the picture of me walking across the blue room, and uh, what the president whispered in my ear was, I really look forward to working with you. So after those encounters... And that was just a few days before you were Yeah, that was on the the Sunday after the inauguration. The next Friday, I have dinner, and the president begins by wanting to talk about my job. And so I'm sitting there thinking, wait a minute, three times we've already, you've already asked me to stay or talked about me staying. My common sense, again, I could be wrong, but my common sense told me what's going on here is that he's looking to get something in exchange for granting my request to stay in the job. February 14th, again, it seems a bit strange. You were in a meeting, and your direct superior, the attorney general, was in that meeting as well, yet the president asked everyone to leave, including the attorney general to leave, 
before he brought up the matter of General Flynn. My impression was something big is about to happen. I need to remember every single word that is spoken. Uh, and again, I could be wrong. But I'm 56 years old. I've been uh, <laughs> seen a few things. My sense was the attorney general knew uh, he shouldn't be leaving, which is why he was lingering. And I don't know Mr. Kushner well, but I think he picked up on the same thing. Uh, and so I knew something was about to happen that I needed to pay very close attention to. In February, the day after Michael Flynn was fired for lying about his connections to Russia, Trump requested a one-on-one -on -one dinner with Comey. Another one. And at this dinner, Trump told Comey that Flynn hadn't done anything wrong, and that he was a good guy, and has been through a lot. No, he's not a good guy. Right? And Flynn's been through a lot. Well, what the Get fuck do you think fuck America's going here. through? And here's the kicker. Donald Trump then said this to Comey. I hope you can see your way clear to letting this go, to letting Flynn go. He's a good guy. I hope you can let this go. <laughs> so the president asked the FBI director, who is tasked with investigating Flynn, to end the investigation into him. Take a listen to Idaho Republican James Risk ask Comey about the wording of Donald Trump during this interaction, as if the wording is really the important right. part. They're acknowledging that the statement had indeed been said, and they're instead arguing over whether it rises over the high legal bar of proving obstruction. At a press conference Friday with the president of Romania, Donald Trump called on a reporter to take a question. And this is how that went. Go ahead, John. Thank you. I'm trying to pass. Be fair, John. Oh, absolutely. Remember how um, nice you used to be before I ran? Um, Such a nice man. Always fair. Uh, Mr. President, um, I want to get back to James Comey's testimony. You, you suggested he didn't tell the truth in everything he said. Uh, he did say under oath that you told him to let the Flynn, uh, or you, you said you hoped the Flynn investigation, you could let he could I didn't let say that. So he lied about that. Well, I didn't say that. I mean, I will tell you, I didn't say that. And, and did he ask you to pledge his And there'd loyalty? be nothing wrong if I did say it, according to everybody that I've read today, but I did not say that. And, and did he ask for a pledge of loyalty from you? That's another thing he said. No, he did not. So he said those things under oath. Would you be willing to speak under oath to uh, give your version of, of 100%. those 100%. I didn't say under oath. I hardly know the man. I'm not going to say I want you to pledge allegiance. Who would do that? Who would ask a man to pledge allegiance under oath? I mean, think of it. I hardly know the man. It doesn't make sense. No, I didn't say that, and I didn't say the other. So if Robert Mueller wanted to speak with you about that, you I would, would be, be glad to, to tell him exactly what I just told you, Joe. And you seem to be hinting that there are recordings of those conversations. I'm not hinting anything. I'll tell you about it over a very short period of time. Okay. Okay. Do you have a question here? When, when, when will you tell us about the recording? Over a fairly short period of time. Why will you now? Are there tapes, sir? Oh, you're going to be very disappointed when you hear the answer. Don't Donald Trump is a clown, yo. I don't even know where to start with this. He's like, yeah, I'll talk about it. Uh, but, whoa, I never said under oath. And the tapes? Uh... I, I, I cannot <laughs> with this guy. I may or may not have tapes. <laughs> I mean, the jokes just write themselves here, people. So y'all may be thinking, how many times did President Barack Obama meet with James Comey alone in the three and a half years Comey served while Barack Obama was president? Uh, do tell. Well, the answer to that, my friend, is two. Two times. Now, guess how many times Donald Trump has met with James Comey in four months, from January 2017 to May? Nine times. Doesn't that ratio seem off? So why did Comey write memos after all his meetings with Donald Trump? Take a listen. 
Now, you said after that briefing, you felt compelled to document that conversation, that you actually started documenting it as soon as you got into the car. Now, you've had extensive experience at the Department of Justice and at the FBI. You've worked under presidents of both parties. What was it about that meeting that led you to determine that you needed to start putting down a written record? A combination of things. I think the circumstances, the subject matter, and the person I was interacting with. Circumstances first, I was alone with the President of the United States, or the President-elect, soon to be President. The subject matter, I was talking about matters that touch on the FBI's core responsibility and that relate to the president, president-elect personally, and then the nature of the person. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting, and so I thought it really important to document. That combination of things I'd never experienced before, but it led me to believe I got to write it down, and I got to write it down in a very detailed way. I was honestly concerned that he might lie. I was honestly concerned that he might lie. I was honestly concerned that he might lie. James Comey started writing these memos documenting his one-on-one -on -one meetings because he felt they were inappropriate. So inappropriate, he asked his boss, Attorney General Jeffrey, Beauregard Sessions, to never let him and Donald Trump have a conversation alone again. And Comey said that Jeff Sessions didn't reply. Trump's that one weird guy that asks every girl where my hug at. <laughs> oh my God, Jeff, don't leave me alone with him again. He's really raping. You're really good with that. Right? So this is how we came to his open hearing with Jeff Sessions. Jeff Sessions took his seat in front of the congressional panel and denied that he stood there silent when Comey told him he didn't want to be alone with the president again. Jeff Sessions says that he in fact told Comey he agreed that one-on-one -on -one meetings aren't a good idea. Something about adhering to DOJ policy. So who's lying? You tell me. Sessions, Sessions or Comey. Comey. But in any case, neither account of the events can be confirmed or denied. It's simply James Comey's word against Jeff Sessions' southern words. But wait, remember all the excuses that the White House gave for firing Comey? It was Russia. No, it was Rod Rosenstein. Wait, it was Carlos Danger. <laughs> <laughs> But when Jeff Sessions was asked about his conversations with Donald Trump about firing Comey, Jeff Sessions said he couldn't talk about it. That to speak about his conversations with Donald Trump would violate Donald Trump's constitutional right. <laughs> I mean, he insisted that this was Donald Trump's right to invoke executive privilege, the right for the president to keep his conversation secret if he so chooses. But Donald Trump did not invoke that right. So why even bring it up? Will Donald Trump invoke it after he hears the questions? So Sessions refused to answer questions based on Donald Trump's future use of his executive privilege. Now that sounds hmm. complicated, right? So if the right wasn't invoked by Donald Trump, then Sessions is able to speak freely and answer all the questions with the truth, right? No, of course not. What do you think this is? America? Well, well actually, this is America. Or, or is, is it? it? Hmm. Look, Jeff Sessions was a senator for two decades or so. He knows that Congress and their panels have no teeth. All bark, no bite. <laughs> Knowing this, he didn't answer. He instead made something up. Literally, he pulled this one out of his ass. <laughs> and these senators on the panel were powerless to compel him to speak. Whatever lawyers Donald Trump and Jeff Sessions consulted, they knew what they were doing. You see, this is the strategy. Let me put y'all on the game. If Donald Trump invokes privilege, he loses in the eyes of the media. They would be foaming at the mouth. 
thereby turning this big snowball into an absolute avalanche. So rather, if Jeff Sessions and his southern mannerisms could sit down and simply deflect, pew, pew, Trump <laughs> wins. If Sessions were to take questions regarding the content of those conversations, it could prove the entire firing of Comey did not go down as the White House said it did. And again, America would be foaming at the mouth. This isn't some genius plan, y'all. You don't need a fucking law degree to see this play. It was the only play they had, you idiots. Take a listen to Democratic Senator Jack Reed of Rhode Island point out Jeff Sessions' flip-flop on Comey about his performance in mere months. On July 7th, when Mr. Comey made his first announcement about the case, you were on Fox News and you said, first of all, Director Comey is a skilled former prosecutor, and then you concluded by saying essentially that uh, it's not his problem, it's Hillary Clinton's problem. Then in November, on November 6th, after Mr. Comey again made news uh, in late October by uh, reopening, if you will, the investigation, you said again on Fox News, you know, FBI Director Comey did the right thing when he found new evidence. He had no choice but to report it to the American Congress, where he had under oath testified. The investigation was over. He had to correct that and say, this investigation is ongoing now. I'm sure it's significant, or else he wouldn't have announced that. So in July and November, Director Comey was doing exactly the right thing. You had no criticism of him. You felt that, in fact, he was a skilled professional prosecutor. You felt that his last uh, statement in October was fully justified. So how can you go from those statements to agreeing with Mr. Rosenstein and then asking the president or recommending he be fired? Uh, your whole premise in recommending to the president uh, was the actions in October involving um, Secretary of State Clinton, uh, the whole Clinton controversy. Uh, did you feel misled when the president announced that his real reason for uh, dismissing Mr. Comey was the Russian investigation? Uh, I don't have, I'm, I'm not able to characterize you, you, that fact. So, I, I so, wouldn't try to comment on that. So, so you had no inkling that there was anything to do with Russia until the president of the United States basically declared it not only on TV, but in the Oval Office to the Russian foreign minister saying, the pressure's off now, I got rid of that nut job. That, that came to you as a complete surprise. He loved him when he was shitting on Hillary, right? but didn't like him when he was playing hardball about Russia? Mm -hmm. But come on, we already know that. The firing of Comey had nothing to do with Hillary. Not a damn thing. And now Democratic <sighs> senators are not happy about Jeff Sessions appearing before them, basically just to shit on him. Take a listen to Democratic senators rip Jeff Sessions over his shitty excuses. This next clip is of Senator Kamala Nasty Woman Harris as she presses Jeff Sessions on whether or not he had actually read the document describing the, quote, long-standing policy of not speaking to Congress like Sessions implied he did. After talking in circles and not answering the question, <laughs> Senator Harris asked for a simple yes or no, to which Sessions then said no, he hadn't read it, before she was again interrupted by John McCain. Tired of John McCain's old interrupt and having ass. Shut your old ass up. <laughs> McCain interrupted her last week, too. His old ass must have forgot dementia. That's a sneaky thing. Take a listen. 
uh, Attorney General Sessions, you have um, several times this afternoon uh, prefaced your responses by saying, um, to the best of your recollection, uh, just on the first page of your three pages of written testimony, you wrote, nor do I recall, do not have recollection, do not remember it. Did you have any communications with Russian officials uh, for any reason during the campaign that have not been disclosed uh, in public or to this committee? Uh, I don't recall it, uh, but I have to tell you, uh, I cannot testify to what was uh, said as we were standing at the Republican convention before the podium where I spoke. My, my just, question is uh, only as don't have the to detailed memory of that. Okay, as it I'm relates to your knowledge, did you have mind? any communication with any Russian businessmen or any Russian nationals? I don't believe I had any conversation with Russian businessmen or Russian nationals. Are you aware Although of any communication? A lot of people were at the convention. It's conceivable that somebody sir, came sir, up to me. Sir, I have just a few. Well, you let me qualify it. If, okay. if I don't qualify it, you'll accuse me of lying. So I need to be correct as best I can. I do want you to be honest. And I'm not able to uh, be rushed this fast. It makes me nervous. Are you aware of any communications with other Trump campaign officials and associates uh, that they had with Russian officials or any uh, Russian nationals? I don't recall that. And uh, are you aware of At any this moment. And um, you referred to a longstanding DOJ policy. Um, can you tell us what policy it is you're talking about? Well, I think most cabinet people, as the witnesses uh, you had before you earlier, those individuals uh, declined to comment because we're all about conversations with the president. Sir, I'm just asking that's you about the DOJ policy you referred to. A policy to. that goes beyond just the attorney general. Is that policy in writing somewhere? Uh, I, I think so. So did you not consult it before you came before this committee, knowing we would ask you questions about it? Well, we, we talked about it. The policy is Did based... Did you ask that it would be shown to you? The policy is based on the principle that the president... Sir, uh, I'm not asking about the principle. I'm asking when well, you, you would be asked the these question. questions and you would rely on that policy. Chairman, Did you not ask your staff to show you the policy that would be the basis for you refusing to answer the Chairman, majority of questions that have been asked should be allowed to answer the question. Senators will allow the chair <laughs> to control the hearing. Senator Harris... Let him answer. Please do. Uh, Thank you. We talked about it, uh, and we talked about the real principle that's at stake. It's one that I have some appreciation for as having spent 15 years in the Department of Justice, 12 as United States <coughs> Attorney, and that principle is that the Constitution provides the head of the executive branch certain privileges, and that uh, members, one of them is confidentiality of communications. And it is improper for agents of any of the department of, of uh, any departments in the executive branch to waive that privilege without a clear approval Chairman, of the president. I have asked. And that's the uh, situation this we're in. For a yes or no, did you ask? So your the staff answer is yes. I consulted. Senator, did you ask your staff uh, to see Sanders the policy? Expired. Apparently Senator not. Cornyn. After this exchange, another senator, Ron Wyden of Oregon, told Comey he was stonewalling, protecting someone other than the American people. To which he emphatically said, I am not. And then there's this part where little Jeff Wee gets mad. Senator Wyden. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, I want to thank you for holding this hearing in the open, in full view of the American people where it belongs. 
I believe the American people have had it with stonewalling. Americans don't want to hear that answers to relevant questions are privileged and off limits, or that they can't be provided in public, or that it would be, quote, inappropriate for witnesses to tell us what they know. We are talking about an attack on our democratic institutions, and stonewalling of any kind is unacceptable. And General Sessions has acknowledged that there is no legal basis for this stonewalling. Senator Wyden, I uh, am not stonewalling. I am following the historic policies of the Department of Justice. Respectfully, you're not answering the well, question. Well, what is the question? The question <laughs> is, Mr. Comey said that there were matters with respect to the recusal that were problematic and he couldn't talk about them. What are they? I, that, why don't you tell me? They are none, Senator Wyden. There are none. I can tell you that for absolute certainty. We can, we can. You tell, this is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me, and I don't appreciate it, and I've tried to give my best and truthful answers to any committee I've appeared before, and it's really, uh, 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 people are suggesting through innuendo uh, that I have been not honest. <laughs> <laughs> that clip is rich. It works for a number of his views. Oh, so, man. Attorney General Sessions, do you believe that there is any reason to allow blacks and whites to intermingle? There are none. I can tell you that for absolute certainty. Whoa, tranquilo de papo. Attorney General, do you think that there is any reason to stop white nationalists from spewing hate against people of color and the Jewish community? There are none. There are none. I can tell you that for absolute certainty. Yo, what? <laughs> What's wrong with this guy? This clip is perfect. <clears throat> Attorney General, in your eyes, Mr. Sessions, do you see any reason Donald Trump should be president? There are none. I can tell you that for absolute certainty. Well, <laughs> well I'm glad we could agree on that. I'm glad, bro. Back to topic. No one asked him to divulge classified information. No one asked him to reveal nuclear codes or other sensitive material. They are simply asking him about his interactions with the president. And he refuses to answer. The best line of questioning came from Senator Heinrich from New Mexico. Ah, the state of enchantment. Some common goddamn sense. Take a listen. Uh, Senator Heinrich, I'm not um, able to share uh, with this committee, private communication. Because you're invoking executive privilege. I'm not able to invoke executive privilege. That's the president's uh, prerogative. Well, my understanding is that <laughs> you took an oath, you raised your right hand here today, and you said that you would solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And now you're not answering questions. You're impeding this investigation. So my understanding of the legal standard is that you either answer the question, that's the best outcome. You say, this is classified, can't answer it here. I'll answer it in closed session. That's bucket number two. Bucket number three is to say, I'm invoking executive privilege. There is no appropriateness bucket. It is not a legal standard. Can you tell me what are these longstanding DOJ rules that protect conversations made in the executive without invoking executive privilege. One of the things deals with, uh, Cam, uh, the investigation of the special counsel 
As and other, we're not ans asking well, questions just, about that inv investigation. If I wanted to ask questions about that investigation, I'd, I'd ask those of Rod Rosenstein. I'm asking about your personal knowledge from this committee, which has a constitutional obligation to get to the bottom of this. There are two investigations here. There is a special counsel investigation. There is also a congressional investigation. And you are obstructing that congressional delegation, uh, investigation by not answering these questions. And I think your silence, like the silence of Director Coates, like the silence of Admiral Rogers, speaks volumes. I would say that I have consulted with senior career attorneys uh, in the department. I suspect And they believe this is consistent with my duties. And I think your silence speaks volumes. Indeed, Sessions, your silence speaks volumes. You ain't fooling nobody, man. You didn't want to take the questions because your answers would drag Trump through the mud. You didn't answer because you don't care about justice. You just want to keep your position. You're a lawyer, Jeff Sessions, and you made up some flimsy legal excuse. But in the end, Jeff Sessions will win this battle. You see, the panel he sat in front of is run by Republican. Congress is owned by Republicans, and no Republican cares to bring these guys to justice. So unless the GOP grows a strong pair of ovaries... I don't see these spineless buffoons achieving anything. Buffoons. In related news, Donald Trump tweeted out who his choice is to replace Comey. Wait, he tweeted it? So Donald <gasps> Trump's tweets are now official White House press releases? What a time to be alive. <laughs> Donald Trump versus me and mine. Oh, we talking teams? Yeah. Oh, we talking teams? You gotta pick a side? Sessions of Comey? Hey! You know what really makes me sad? Nah. That back in 2008, I created a Twitter account because I read that Barack Obama had made a Twitter account. He was like the plastics to me. I wanted to be this guy. <laughs> oh my God, Rosie. That's so fetch. <laughs> Shut up. But now look what this fool has done to Twitter. Oh yeah. Christopher Ray. That's who Comey's replacement is. Oh yeah. I forgot that's what we were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> look, we'll go in depth in future episodes about Christopher Ray, but just know he defended New Jersey governor and actual passenger from the spaceship in Wally, Chris Christie, during his Bridgegate scandal. And quite frankly, fuck, fuck Chris Christie. Christie. And fuck Jersey too. Speaking of New Jersey. The second shittiest state next to Alabama. Held its primary elections last Tuesday to find out who will replace real-life Humpty Dumpty impersonator Chris Christie. <laughs> and if you live in New Jersey and didn't vote, we don't blame you. Nothing and no one can fix Jersey. That place is a shithole. <laughs> the Jersey Turnpike is almost depressing to drive on. I can feel all of my happiness get sucked out of me when I exit the tunnel from New York City. If you didn't know, New Jersey has the highest property tax rates in the country. Some wow. places, it's double the national average. And I bet you're asking, what's the average tax bill? Well, no. No, William. No <laughs> one is asking that because no one thinks about these things but you. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're interested. The <laughs> average property tax bill is $8,500. I'm sure this is going to get you far in jeopardy one day. This is what you need to know. New Jersey politics, as a 65-year-old lady recently told me, is full of crooks and bankers. But this state voted 55% for Hillary, 41% for Trump. On his way to the presidency, Donald Trump blasted the Democratic Party and Hillary Clinton for being in the pockets of big banks. And that is true. Whoa. It's sort of scary that we agree with Trump on something, man. Let's never speak of this again. Never again. But wait, 
There's Bernie Sanders. The savior. Truly, honestly. And we will talk about Bernie Sanders and his politics for decades to come. You'll see. Bernie is igniting populism and a sort of humanism within the Democratic Party. And if Dems can get out of taking money from big money donors, we could win every election for the foreseeable future. But politics has been morphed into a game of money, literally billions of dollars. And a bulk of that money comes from the financial sector of America and those who want the current state of affairs to remain the status quo. I mean, the same guys who want to repeal Dodd-Frank. Who? Dodd-Frank is a set of Obama-era regulation that oversee banks and protect financial consumers to prevent yet another housing and banking meltdown from occurring. But see, we'll talk about that later. So populist policies that end up costing corporations more have been sidelined by both parties. Fact. If you're a Democrat and you believe that Democrats in Congress have been fighting corporations on your behalf, you don't realize the truth about politics. All politicians. Except Bernie. Except Bernie. Are owned by corporations. These corporations have lobbyists, thousands of them. Who the fuck is lobbying Congress for $15 minimum wage for the McDonald worker? So, I bet you're wondering... Who will be the Democratic nominee for New Jersey governor? His name is Phil Murphy, a fellow whose number one qualification to be governor is that he is an ex-Goldman Sachs executive. You got that right, y'all. The Democratic nominee for New Jersey is only there because as a Goldman Sachs executive, he gave $1.2 million, million dollars to various political entities. Essentially, he bought his nomination. And as a gift for his donations... Obama appointed him as ambassador to Germany, which is customary for large donors. But this banker, he's pushing a populist agenda. Surprise, surprise. He supports a $15 an hour minimum wage, and right now it's $8.44 in New Jersey. And according to MIT, the living wage for a single person in New Jersey is $13. New Jersey's motto is, bring me your tired and homeless, and we'll put them to work full time <laughs> and still manage to keep them homeless. How dare you need food stamps? What else does this banker turned populist have on his agenda? Well, he wants to legalize marijuana. Right. After so many people of color have been incarcerated for trying to make a dime on the leafy green plant to boost their wages to afford rent. I'm just trying to pay rent. Where were these pot-loving politicians five, 10, 15 years ago? They were smoking pot. <laughs> and I wonder... When they legalize marijuana, who will own most of the distribution and sales chains in New Jersey? Well, they're going to be ex-bankers turned weed growers who happen to be predominantly white males. But can we just sit here and marvel at the movement <sighs> of social Democrats and the effects of Bernie Sanders? Deadass, man. Name a single candidate who will run on the Democratic side in 2018 or 2020 who doesn't support higher wages and universal single-payer health care. Name them. You can't. That's all Bernie, baby. And this is where I will go off on my rant about the Democratic Party. All these I'm with her shirts and banners. Look, don't get me wrong. I was with Hillary when Donald Trump was the looming catastrophe on the horizon. But during the primary race, how could anyone be on her side over Bernie Sanders? You fell victim to the DNC marketing scheme. Hillary didn't support gay marriage until recently. Hillary thought minority kids were super predators and just recently came around to Black Lives Matter. If Hillary had a middle name, it would be Banks. Hillary Banks. Shout out Fresh Prince. She has been intertwined with Banks and the financial sector her entire career. Bernie's own platform pushed Hillary to adopt some of his own values. And now you see it all across the party. He pulled Hillary and Democrats to the left. Imagine an America with Bernie Sanders as president. But instead... 
we put our most vulnerable horse to run the longest leg of the Triple Crown, which, if you didn't know, is the Belmont Stakes. You and these random <laughs> facts. Man, horse racing is a beloved pastime in my family. But if you're ever asked, hey, what's the longest horse racetrack in the Triple Crown? You can confidently say it's the Belmont Stakes. Thank me later. Keep that in my back pocket. Look, Hillary was our horse, a beautiful horse, with so much experience running races. But on that day, the skies opened up and the track was wet and muddy. She lost momentum and the people didn't come out to see her run the race. And boom, we got this idiot Donald Trump as president. Surprisingly, that analogy works pretty damn well. Horses, I'm kind of mad that it makes as much sense as it did. Look, I'm a horse whisperer. What can I say? But let's not digress. On the Republican side, their nominee for governor. Who, who cares? cares? Probably another climate denying. Healthcare gutting. Political insider. Who probably cares nothing about the citizens of Jersey. Because honestly, who cares about the people who live in New Jersey? Not your politicians. Nah. So here's to you, Jersey. Another election cycle where you go unnoticed because either you don't care about who the governor will be. Or simply because you're too busy working to pay your property taxes on less than living wage while ditching potholes on the fucking turnpike. <laughs> well, why we do Jersey so dirty right Damn, there? we did just do dirt Jersey. Damn, we did just do Jersey dirty. <laughs> we did just do Jersey dirty. <laughs> That's just like a tongue twister, man. We did just do Jersey dirty Dirty as Jersey Jersey. Damn, we did Jersey. Damn, we did do Jersey dirty. <laughs> Is that a dance, the Jersey dirty? I think so. Damn, we did Jersey dirty. Did we? Did we really, though? <laughs> that entire state is a super fun site. They did it to themselves, if you ask me. Well, moving on to a quick barrage of more Trump news. Donald Trump tweeted crying like a baby about the Supreme Court rejecting his travel ban. And he actually called his travel ban a travel ban. A travel ban, which the White House has staunchly defended since the first executive order, as not being a travel ban. <laughs> Try defending that in court, Donnie. The White House had to revise the order to pass legal scrutiny because it was clearly anti-Muslim. And even in its current form? It's going to be a tough measure to convince five Supreme Court justices that it's not an anti-Muslim measure. On Sunday, the Puerto Rican Day Parade rumbled through the streets of Manhattan. And let me tell you, this was my first Puerto Rican Day Parade ever. It was something of folklore in my family growing up. You see, my dad's from the Bronx, the oh, South Bronx. Bronx. And we were often told about how great New York was, how great hey. being Puerto Rican is. I'm a New York Rican, New York Yankees all the way. Go Mets. But growing up in a place like Virginia, there wasn't that large of a Latin community. So dreaming of a parade that openly celebrated one half of my identity was a dream to my brothers and I. That's crazy because I grew up in Harlem. And so I went to the Puerto Rican Day Parade every year. I mean... Forget going to the parade. I was in it every year. I was shimmying beside Jennifer <laughs> Lopez. She's a true Puerto Rican hero and legend. Now imagine being in Virginia and wearing one of those Puerto Rican do-rags and all these white people staring at you like, what's wrong with that guy? I strictly went to the parade this year to buy one of those do-rags. 
But as a child going to the parade, I was so proud to wave that flag. But while we sit here nostalgic and proud, Puerto Rico is in the middle of a debt crisis, and the future of Puerto Rico is at stake. God damn you, you're such a fun (laughs) sucker. You always suck the fun out of things. Look, right now the economy of Puerto Rico is in shambles as it struggles to make payments on their debt. True, $70 billion of debt. How did it come to this? Well, that answer is very complicated. Having to do with tax-free bonds to pay outstanding debts. A 0% tax rate granted to corporations operating there. Government spending. Corruption, etc., etc., you name it. But to understand Puerto Rico now, we must understand history. Try and imagine Puerto Rico in 1492, a tropical island inhabited by the indigenous Tainos. Beautiful, dark-skinned, slender bodies, intelligent beyond measure. They learned to remove cyanide from cassava and made yuca a staple in their diet. They cultivated sweet potatoes, beans, and they fished the beautiful waters, exploring with canoes so large they can navigate the ocean. The cities were well-planned as well and densely populated. But in 1493, Christopher Columbus landed on Puerto Rico. This is how he describes the Tainos. They were very well built, with very handsome bodies and good faces. They do not carry arms or know them. They should be good servants. The Spanish arrived acting as benevolent protectors and morphed quite quickly into slavers. And indeed, the first people enslaved in the New World were the Tainos. The Spanish had no need for these people except for labor and coerced marriages. And within 15 years of the Spanish arrival, The Tainos of the island were killed by force, or from smallpox from the European pillagers. They were forced off their farms and into the mines, and crops weren't being tended and many starved. The Spanish then brought African slaves to replace the dead Tainos in the gold and silver mines. And effectively, the bloodline of Taino and the culture of these people were erased by slavery, disease, and colonial power. In a mere 50 years, the Tainos of the Caribbean were erased, raped, and killed. This is a recently published book, and I think all y'all should read it. It's called The Other Slavery by Andres Resendez. And it documents the slavery of indigenous people in the Americas, from South America to Mexico to the Caribbean. And if you have a library card, go get this book. If you got money, it's $10 on Amazon. And it's a must-read for all people, but especially Latinx people. We must know where we come from to understand where we are going. And our roots are defined by the exploitation of our people through slavery and subjugation. But the Taino live on. Some cities in Puerto Rico hold their Taino name. Such as Maya West and Caguas. You may say Taino words and have no idea. Barbecue is derived from Tainos. Tobacco. Canoe. Hammock. Hurricane. All rooted in Taino. Hell, even the word Caribbean is Taino. Derived from a word that Tainos used to mean human being. It's a shame that colonial powers did not see the Caribs of the Caribbean to be human beings. The Taino live on in my family as well. My little brother Michael was Oof. born, and my grandmother immediately nicknamed him Indio. An affectionate tribute to his dark skin, but also a word used by Spanish invaders to describe the people they found in the Caribbean and West Indies. Because they believed they were landing in India. Remember, the entire point of Christopher Columbus sailing west was to land in India. And these idiots landed here on accident and just destroyed all its people. The effects of colonization dot the histories of countless nations around the world, from Jamaica to the Philippines. After the Spanish realized the military importance of Puerto Rico, they built garrisons and military outposts using money 
from the mines in present-day Mexico, where they enslaved those indigenous people as well. Fact. The most famous garrison built in Puerto Rico is El Moro. If you've been to Puerto Rico, you've been to the Fortaleza. It was during the 1700s that Puerto Rico and the Spanish rulers turned Puerto Rico into a major coffee and sugarcane producer. These large estates needed a large amount of labor and African slaves were brought to the island in great numbers. By the 1830s, the largest buyer of Puerto Rican sugar and molasses was, you guessed it, the United States. And by the 1850s, conditions between the people and Spanish rule grew to a breaking point. It was clear that the only way forward with Puerto Rico was through abolishing slavery. Slavery drove rebellion. And the Spanish, fearing pro-independence revolts, conceded many important reforms over the next decade. Most important being the abolition of slavery in the late 1860s. However, the call for independence gained momentum on the island because people feared distant powers will continue their use of the island as a bank. Foreigners who have no ties to Puerto Rico coming in and ruling, the United States being the most powerful foreigners who set their sights on Puerto Rico. By the 1890s, war was imminent in Cuba between the people and Spanish rule, and soon the Spanish-Cuban War broke out. But American companies had several commercial interests in Cuba, mostly being sugar mills, which was a gold-chip cash crop. Straight cash, homie. And nothing could interfere with American money. This is the reason America entered the Spanish-Cuban War, to protect its interests. Mm -mm. It called on the Spanish government to grant autonomy to the citizens of Cuba and Puerto Rico. And through this diplomatic pressure, Spain conceded. We remember it as the Spanish-American War that ended in 1898. But this war was started by those whose calls for independence turned into action. Puerto Ricans were optimistic. Many inside Puerto Rico knew of America's interest in that island and believed it would be granted independence through American involvement. In 1898, American forces invaded Puerto Rico and was met with very little military resistance from Spain. And overall, the people of Puerto Rico accepted them. After the war ended in 1898, Spain conceded land to the United States through the Treaty of Paris. These lands include the islands of Puerto Rico, the Philippines, and Guam. Cuba became a protectorate. In 1898, less than a year after the war ended, American companies started buying land in Aguirre, in Salinas, and Guanica soon thereafter. The American government also wanted Puerto Rico for its strategic position militarily, as well as the potential for agricultural goods, mostly sugarcane. After taking over the land in 1899, America instituted military rule and built highways, roads, schools, and sanitation systems. This military rule did not sit well with the people. Like, who the <laughs> hell are these white people running our country? We fuck? thought America was about freedom and self-determination. Well, you thought wrong. To prevent spreading discontent, the United States amended their leadership to include local Puerto Ricans. But this was not enough. Puerto Ricans wanted more local control of their affairs. In this gray area of colonization, Puerto Ricans were citizens of no particular country. They were in limbo. Then, in 1917, America granted American citizenship to all Puerto Ricans. This was a move to appease locals, but it fell short of that goal. Puerto Ricans wanted political rights in totality. Something that could not be achieved when the current power structure of the 1920s Puerto Rico was dominated by high-ranking officials, all picked by the President of the United States. Ain't that some crazy shit? The game was rigged against those who wanted independence in Puerto Rico. And the U.S. never intended on giving Puerto Rico their independence. 
Things did change for Puerto Rico. Their three branches of government closely mirrored America, and government agencies started to take care of the sick and the poor. Through modern age medicine, the death rate was cut drastically, and the population of the island grew as a result. But through the 1920s and 1930s, American companies invested heavily in sugar on the island. New disease-resistant strains of sugar cane were brought to the island, and the production of sugar in lands dedicated to sugar grew tremendously. American companies built factories, grinding mills, roads to support the transportation of sugar, and business was booming. Booming. Everything has sugar in it. I mean, <laughs> just ask my diabetes, right? <laughs> This, however, destroyed the earning and livelihood of independent farmers. The small farmer could not compete with American companies. And wealth trickled out of the middle and lower middle class farmer into the hands and pockets of elite foreign businessmen. The rich got richer and the poor got poorer. This story is true, not only in America, but all over the world. My dad was born on a farm in 1930s Puerto Rico, and his mother had the foresight to see that it was a dying industry, Can and imagine. they had to get out of there. Can you imagine growing up on a farm in Puerto Rico at that time? However, in the 1940s, President FDR aimed to change things, to equalize economic power in Puerto Rico from corporations to the people. There was a law in the books that limited corporations to only own 500 acres of land, a law that was never enforced. Never which would allow for corporate powers to buy any and all land they wanted. But by enforcing this law, lands could then be shifted back to the farmer, which would allow them to compete and earn a living independently. And this is what FDR had planned. Unfortunately, this movement to equalize economics in Puerto Rico ultimately failed, but the seeds of change were planted. Puerto Rico soon shifted from an agricultural economy to something completely different. In the 1950s, America spurred growth in Puerto Rico by investing in the island's infrastructure and offering tax breaks to companies to relocate to Puerto Rico and build factories. Oh, and indeed they came, in large numbers. Slowly, the workers left the fields and moved into the factories. And in 1952, it was named a Commonwealth by vote of referendum by the Puerto Rican people. And Puerto Rico finally got its own constitution. But political factions arguing over the future of Puerto Rico clashed violently. Violence between nationalists and those who supported American-backed leadership continued well into the 1980s. Puerto Ricans moved from the interior of the island and settled into densely populated cities near the coast, near factories. The identity of Puerto Ricans were in question. Who were they? What is the national identity of a country that's had its indigenous people killed? whose ancestors were forcefully enslaved and brought to this island. Whose history is constantly being written by people who have no interest in the national identity, but rather prophets. In 1959, Cuba revolted, and Fidel Castro came to rise, riding the wave of national sentiment. Cubans wanted to rule themselves. The changing economics of Puerto Rico accelerated in the 1960s and the 1970s as America invested to ensure Puerto Rico would be a shining example of capitalism, contrasted with communist Cuba. Income was higher, yet citizens throughout thought that corporations benefited more. And of <laughs> course they did. Food stamps were introduced to help lower income citizens eat better. But the sheer number of those on food stamps showed that they were not earning enough for their living expenses. Another example of corporate exploitation. Things were better in many ways, but yet the population of Puerto Rico struggled with what to do next. Three distinct schools of thought emerged. Those who wanted to remain a commonwealth. Those who wanted statehood. And those who want independence. The 1990s saw major political movements to address the will of the Puerto Rican people. 
two separate plebiscites were brought to order and in neither of those did Puerto Ricans vote for statehood. This time period also saw an elimination of tax credits for corporations operating there, which led to the loss of 80,000 or so jobs. <sighs> And so began the spiral of economic woes, decades in the making. In 2014, austerity measures were implemented to cut spending and help pay government debt. So when it came time to vote this Sunday, over half of the population did not vote. Puerto Ricans are in the midst of the greatest economic depression in their lifetime. Over 400 schools 400. have been closed down due to budget constraints. 45% of Puerto Rico lives in poverty. And some don't see a solution coming from voting. Puerto Ricans on the mainland and those in the states are still divided over this. Some believe staying in Commonwealth is the right thing while others push for independence from colonial rule. While some believe that statehood is the only way forward at this point, arguing that access to federal funds for infrastructure and public works, access to healthcare funding, and the ability to vote for the American president will help Puerto Rico climb back from debt and ensure that their voice is heard. As they stand now, they can only vote in the presidential primaries, but not in the actual election. I mean, what's the point in that? <laughs> that made no fucking sense. I mean, just last May, on May 1st, May Day, protesters in Puerto Rico took to the streets to demand an audit of the country's debts and the origins of that debt. Students at the University of Puerto Rico have been protesting budget cuts, and it prompted the university to close for 55 days. And it was just reopened last week. The struggle of the Puerto Rican people was openly expressed at the Puerto Rican Day Parade. Black Puerto Rican flags were waved and support for Oscar Lopez de Rivera was visible through signs and shirts and floats on the parade route. Rivera was one of the leaders of a Puerto Rican political group that fought for Puerto Rican independence and was responsible for violent acts and bombings to secure that vision. Before Barack Obama left office, he commuted Lopez Rivera's sentence. His invitation to participate in the parade prompted many corporate sponsors to pull their support. Most notably being Goya Foods, which has supported this parade since the 50s. God damn. In addition to the support for a man many call a terrorist, there were also signs being waved protesting the colonial rule of Puerto Rico, while other signs waved for statehood. The future of Puerto Rico remains hazy. Congress is distracted with Trump and Russia and is unlikely to act soon on this vote for statehood. Will the United States government save Puerto Rico? Some ask, should it? But as the floats passed by and the troubled reality of Puerto Rico have been bared for all to see, it became clear that Puerto Ricans have made America rich, not only in dollars, but also rich in culture. A mishmash of beauty of African, Spanish, and native roots grappling with the effects of colonialism. Colonized nations always endure struggle on their way to independence. In ways, Puerto Rico was used to further American interests and profits. But when the winds changed, that support ended. Let's never forget that Puerto Ricans died fighting for American ideals in wars overseas. Ideals that even America has struggled to live up to recently. Puerto Rico needs help, and America should support Puerto Rico and its debt crisis. But I fear that day will never come unless the people will it into existence. I recently had the opportunity to sit down with my dad, Papa Hernandez. Papa Bear. To talk about what it was like growing up on that farm in Puerto Rico. His memories working the sugarcane and coffee fields, as well as his family's move to New York. And what it was like being a Puerto Rican immigrant in New York City. Okay, say something. Start with my name on it then? Yeah, just say your name. I am Pedro, and I was born in Puerto Rico, 
quite a while back, 1939 to be exact. And my remembering Puerto Rico was good memories, but also rough memories. Living was hard. We lived on a farm and we worked hard. We had to produce and that's, that whatever we produced was taken to the market and, and whatever and sold forward. Puerto Rico in those days relied mainly, number one, was the sugar cane. And the sugar cane is a rough environment and job. Number one, the season is June, July, and August, extremely hot. And uh, people just got hit it, and they don't get paid very much. They didn't get paid very much, barely living wages. We as a family running the farm, we had a little more uh, leeway. But still, I can remember getting up in the morning. I, was, uh, I left there in 1955. I was 15 years old. So I wasn't expected to receive payment. I had to work for free. I had to do the plowing with my grandfather, do the plowing of the land. And of course, I didn't get a nickel. Uh, even the employees barely uh, made a living. And it was hard, hot, extremely hot. I was expected another time to just hand out water to the workers. And the sugar cane is, you know, you got to deal with it gently because it can cut you up. You know, you can get all cut up and maybe even pass out from the heat. It was hard work and little money. Um, then after the sugar cane season was over, we went into the coffee production. We had employees, of course, that were pretty good at picking coffee beans. But it was not an easy job either due to the fact that the coffee plantations were like in hilly ground and rainy at that time because now we're talking about September and it rains. And there is a lot of wasp, wasp in those trees. That's where the wasp hang out in those trees. And you're picking up coffee beans, and before you know it, the wasp is singing you. you know? <laughs> and um, I didn't do that, but employees did that. But I did run through the coffee beans, and I remember getting chased by the wasp and, and getting stung by a wasp. Um, as a kid, I enjoyed in that there was a river to swim. We go swimming in the river. We enjoyed that very much. Uh, we didn't have much diversity, you know, uh, things to do, but we enjoyed in the river swimming. And then, uh, thanks to my mother, who was uh, a go-getter, she said, this is not good enough for us. We have to go forward. Let's, let's make a move to the United States. My father was hesitant because he knew what he had in his hand. He didn't know what he was gonna get in the United States. So my mother said, I'll go. To New York. I start working and I start sending for you all. And we were a big family. We were uh, 12, but one, one fellow, one of our brother was dead, so there was 11. That was a big family. My mother came to New York. She had hardship at the beginning. Was she by herself? 
Yeah, she was in. Uh, she, she was. Uh, she was living with her with her sister okay. at that time in in, in Mosby. And slowly but surely, within six eight months, she had enough money to send for my father, and the two younger kids, one being one and one being two, and the big sister that was uh, like a couple of years older than me, so she could babysit. So my mother and my father could go to work, and. We were blessed by coming to the United States of America. Um, you know, we prosper, prosper and uh, we uh, we did very well, thanks God, and the USA. But there was also hardships. First of all, there was a the language, the language, and uh, the, I go to school, and I don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> I don't know what the, you know what I'm supposed to do or say. So it, it was uh, it was uh, hard. Also, then after a while, I, schooling wasn't a big problem. It was not a problem. Well, biggest problem we had was that white America, or specifically Italian Italian neighborhood, did not welcome Puerto Ricans in their in their neighborhood, and that's where we ended up going. And every day was a hassle with a fight or run, you know, one or the other. And uh, sometimes to get home from school, you couldn't go direct line because you know the, the, there were the Italian mob was waiting for you to beat you up. You had to go around roundabout ways, and it took us. Well, it would take ten minutes to get home. It would take an hour. Personally, myself, as well as uh, my brothers, we saw minorities, especially Puerto Rican, get killed in the neighborhood just because they did not know how to behave. They would, they would go through the neighborhood from the, their work to where they lived. They had to go through the Italian community, and the Italians would look for problems. And I saw three or four Puerto Rican and two blacks getting hammered to death with baseball bats. Uh, sometimes after the... Puerto Rico or blacks found themselves surrounded by the Italian looking to do harm to them. They would take off and run, and they run swiftly, but there would be sometimes on the side would be all Italian folks playing some kind of game, sitting on on chairs, and when they see the Hispanic or the, the black running by, they'll get up and throw the chairs in front of them so that the Italian could catch up. And that, that was really inhumane, and I'll never forget that. But that's not to blame today's white America. I mean, the, we, we, have, we have progressed. They have kind of a, we now part of the system. So that's the great thing. But I can never forget those bad memories. I had to fight for myself. I had to fight for my younger brothers. You know, and uh, most of the time I lost. You know, very seldom, but I I got pleasure punching somebody out. You know, <laughs> but I took more beatings than I gave. And um, then later on, at the age of uh, 20, I was drafted into the military, and I did uh, two and a half years in the military, including like three months in Vietnam. And I came back more adult-minded and looking for a career and take that to the military and everything else, one step at a time, uh, things worked out for me very well. 
I ended up in working for sanitation. Did 33 years, retired, doing pretty well financially. I got a lot to be thankful to America. Um, again, uh, Puerto Rico later on went into a different way of making uh, livelihood. They started producing sneakers and, you know, and sending them back to the United States. Also, the pharmaceuticals settled in Puerto Rico wholeheartedly, and that created a job and a much better situation. But my memory is hating the sugarcane, the sugarcane field. <laughs> so where, where in Puerto Rico um, did you live? I was born in Cabo Puerto Rico, and then when my parents, parents bought that land, was in Mayagüez, which is uh, you know, like uh, an hour's drive away. And uh, that's where we lived until we came to the United States. And like I said, I enjoy swimming in the rivers. I did not enjoy going to school too much, though I didn't have problems to school. And I know somewhere along the line, God had his hand in, in directing us and guiding us. Uh, I have so much to be thankful, not only to the United States of America, but to New York City and New York State. They, they, they are, there's no better state in the Union than New York State. Puerto Rico, my opinion is uh, Puerto Rico should be the 51st state, but we have nothing to say about it, evidently, it seems. There's no reason why Puerto Rico should not be the 51st state. I remember being younger and talking about statehood, and here it is. I'm 70 plus years old, I'm still talking about statehood. So it's, it's been, it's been uh, a long ride, and I, I'm thankful. Um, there is a, a faction of Puerto Ricans who call themselves uh, 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 independents. They, they, want, they want to fight for Puerto Rican independence. I don't think that they know exactly what they're talking about, or what they want to do, because if Puerto Rico is struggling under the American flag, well, they could struggle even worse in independence. But that's politics, and uh, politics is a dirty game. Mm. Let me just say that um, I live in Florida now, and I'm enjoying my retirement. But living in New York was the best, and particularly... Puerto Rican Day Parade. It was amazing. And uh, I had to march every year. I was mandated to march because of my, my job. But either way, it's the greatest parade in the world. And I hope it doesn't get uh, affected by people believing me that there's a Puerto Rican independence who just got released from jail after 35 years. and. A lot of Puerto Ricans themselves feel that he should have still been in jail. And so we don't know how, how that's going to play in the parade, but I hope there is peace and harmony. God bless New York, God bless the United States, and God bless Puerto Rico, and my children and grandchildren, hey, I hope and me. pray. <laughs> where, where in New York did you end up? I ended up living on Mott Street in Lower Manhattan, between Prince Street and Houston, the heart of Little Italy. Yes, let's say it's Little Italy. Yeah, the heart of Little Italy. 
And I remember the wars getting beaten up and trying to beat somebody back up, but I got more more beating than I gave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, it's uh, it's something to, to look back and reflect and just look for the good things instead of the bad things. Que viva Puerto Rico, and I hope the parade is peaceful. That's, that's about all I have to say other than the fact that I never, ever want to pick coffee beans. <laughs> <laughs> I never, ever want to cut sugar cane. <laughs> <laughs>